Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What's happening, football fans? Welcome back to the Gagan Pod, where we're joined by Mark Schwartzer, Michael Bridges, and a very special guest in Paul Williams, who will be going through the J-League that kicks off this week. We talk FIFA Club World Cup. Is it even really a major trophy? Are Fulham ready for the Premier League? Who's going to finish in the top four? Who are the most underrated players that you've ever played with? And did Mark Schwartzer really wrestle naked in the shower? All that and plenty more coming up on the Gagan Pod. What's happening, football fans? Welcome to another edition of the Gagan Pod. I'm joined by Mark Schwarzer and Michael Bridges, and we'll also be joined by a special guest a bit later on in the episode. But for now, we're going to kick it off with, I guess, what should be the biggest competition in world club football. It's the Club World Cup. Chelsea won it during the week. Schwarzy, is it actually as big as it should be? Do players, coaches, fans really care about this competition? Yeah, no, they do, because Chelsea won it. Yeah, absolutely. That's why it's so massive. That's why it's the biggest tournament ever on the planet because Chelsea won it. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny because the the South American teams take it incredibly seriously, don't they? I, mean, yeah. I didn't realize, um, and just until a couple of days ago, how serious the teams from South America do take it, um, and uh, and also the like the the South American players that played. You know, in the teams like Chelsea, a couple of years years ago, or quite a number of years ago now, I think it was two thousand and twelve, when they lost it. Uh, the Brazilian players, Oscar Ramirez, they were like devastated that they lost. They were crying and everything. So I don't think the European teams take it as seriously, or, or certainly, it's certainly not. It wouldn't be on the list, would it? it? Wouldn't be on the list of achievements that these guys desperately want to to try and to add to their their trophy cabinet. Obviously, once they're there. They want to win it. I mean, Liverpool yeah. showed a couple of years ago they were desperate to win it. Being there, taking your time out, you're going all that way. Right, we're here. It's a it's a trophy. You need to win it. Chelsea were the same. So, um, listen, it's nice. I think it's I think it's a nice extra feather in their cap. Um, Tuchel, unbelievable what he's done. Really, let's be honest. Yeah, it's massive. There's a few players in that team that now have completed an incredible trophy cabinet. Bridgie, when we look at the history of this competition, the Club World Cup, it is quite new. It, it replaced the Intercontinental Playoff, which of course was happening for years between Europe and South America. Um, now, since that, there's been 18 editions. 14 of those have been won by the UEFA club. As opposed to before that, when Conmebol, South America, had 22 wins to 21. So South American football used to be quite dominant in this competition. It has changed in the last 20 years. Is that Does that give you, and you look at that, you look at World Cup results, does that give you a window into the inside of where football's gone? Oh, yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, when we were Champions League semi-finalists at Leeds United, I'm not sure if that competition was in there at this moment in time, the World Always Club. Always brings it up. How many times does Bridgie bring Some, up that he played in the Champions League semi-final? Does it Some, all the time? Something that we never thought about, you know. When you, if if you got a chance of winning that, that's you know a Champions League finalist, and um, it wasn't wasn't something you thought about who we're going to be playing next. But the only time we played against a South American team, we played Cola Cola down at the MCG for Leeds United, 
and we got absolutely spanked off the park. We could not get the ball off them. And it was it was an incredible insight into how ball possession and the quality of the South Americans were. And we got a real reality check and we're thinking, thank God we don't have to play these every week or or this type of football. So that was that was incredible. But now I think the you know, the the game has changed a lot and the, the money is in Europe. And that's why a lot of the best players from around the world end up in Europe and the stats you've just shown um you know, reiterates that. It's kind of a bit of a shame, actually, you only play them in Australia. You know, it was great, you know, for Aussie fans to see Leeds United play and Colo Colo play, but playing in South America is incredible. Uh, playing those World Cup qualifiers against Uruguay, um, Argentina back in 93, the the atmosphere is like no other. It is so unique. It is like, it still makes the hairs on my, on my body stand up because it's so incredible. Um it's ferocious, it's intimidating, it's an incredible buzz, uh, madness. It's absolutely madness. I don't even know how to re- – there's so many things that go through your mind when I think about what it was like to play there in World Cup qualifiers. So, Swartzy, you've played there. You've experienced that inside the, the cauldron in South American football, playing there inside that atmosphere. I never played international football. I didn't feel that. But what I did feel and what, what I did witness, going to watch Australia in the World Cup in Brazil – I've got to say, that was, like you say, the, the fans, the build-up to the games, it was just incredible, mate. And when Argentina arrived in um, Brazil, I travelled to one of the games at the Americana with them, and they are absolutely mental. And it was mental in a nice way. It was just so passionate. So I can only imagine what it was like to play and f- play against these teams, mate. Yeah, absolutely mental. And I think that that's probably the biggest case because this tournament has changed over the years. It was, of course, played in Tokyo for many years. Before that, you used to actually have to go and travel there. And I think that's when the Europeans used to get uh, absolutely everything kicked out of them. And, and it was some great atmospheres there. Uh, what I want to talk about now is for Chelsea, particularly though, Schwartz, you spent some time there. And as a club recently on Optus Sport, the lads posted about this win, how big it was, you know, champions of the world. And you know, the football fans, the football trolls went straight to the keyboards and wrote a lot in there. And there's always this conversation about our oh, plastic club you know money club you wouldn't be anywhere with this and that where does this win and the second champions league win and this last year for chelsea what does it do for the club and historically surely it puts it on that upper echelon of football clubs there's many there's many teams that have come into wealth so um yeah chelsea certainly had an owner that came in with a lot of money and transformed the club overnight but you know i think if you look at it throughout time of history there's been a lot of clubs that have done very similar things but they kind of fly under the radar it's almost like it's allowed it's accepted that you know whether it's you know whether you look at manchester united and the way that they've evolved what is it because they don't have because they've got american owners is a bit different you know um they're a plc they got to a point where they're able to invest huge volumes of money maybe because it wasn't an individual people don't sort of see it they see it differently um Mm. The one club, I mean, even Liverpool. Look, look, look how much money Liverpool has spent. Look how much money Klopp has spent on rebuilding his side. Man City goes without saying. I mean, Chelsea goes without saying. I'm, I'm not denying they haven't spent lots of money. So, th- th- it's a valid argument. I get why the purists. I get why people get upset about it. But there's also been many, many other clubs who have tried it and been incredibly unsuccessful. So, look, Man City for all their money that they've invested, they still haven't won the Champions League. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. so it still takes something special to go on and win the major silverware. Um, so, so I think what Chelsea did in a very, very short period of time, 
that in itself is remarkable. It doesn't matter how much money you throw at things. You know, normally course, those things yeah. take can take forever. I mean, look at PSG. Look at the amount of money that PSG have thrown and haven't won the Champions League. So, mm-hmm. you know, I understand the criticism, but I also think, hang on a sec, you, you still have to get it right on the football pitch, off the football pitch, for it to still be successful. Mm. Bridgie, former club of yours, Newcastle, re- has obviously recently been taken over, and that's the talk of the town. It's this you know, ambition to go bigger and better now, and we've seen new signings actually say that the Champions League is the goal, that is the plan. Do, is there really a problem? No one's bla- breaking any rules. There are some financial fair play things in in uh, in place. Whether they follow that or not, we don't know, but it's not like there's a salary cap. It's not like there's anything like that. No one's breaking any rules. Does this whole money spent even really matter? No, not at all. I've said this in the past, Claude. The more money that is getting spent on the game, especially in the country that you've, you know, I've grown up in and played, played my football in, I'm all for it because as long as they're doing it the right way and they're not breaking any rules and the investment filters down the football pyramid, uh, you know, there's, there's players getting signed and I just think it's absolutely fantastic the way that they are doing it. Go on, Swartzy, what are you going to say? You're against this, aren't you? No, 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 I agree with you. I, I, I'm actually all for it. I think the more clubs that are doing it, the better because it becomes more competitive. Then it doesn't become just a one-team one race like what's happening kind of in, 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 in Germany, you know, where Bayern is dominating everything. They want it, they've won it nine in a row. They're going for 10. You look at what Juve did for a while. Now everyone's kind of come back into it again. But, uh, look, what's happening, look what's happening in France. I mean, it, it, okay, I know, I know Lille did win it last year, but... That's very few and far between. It happens on the occasion. In the Premier League, we've still got four or five teams that can win it and have probably won it in the last 10 years. We, The more teams, I'm all for it, the more teams that have money, the more teams that are able to invest, the better the teams become, the more attractive the league becomes, the more competitive it comes, and the more I want to watch it. Yeah. And the, the the good thing about these owners, like he's talked about at Bramwich, you know, Swartz has been there, he's worked worked under him, he's, he's seen what is going on at the academy there, he's seen where the, the money, getting the, some of the best players from around Europe to buy them. Newcastle United at this moment in time don't have never had that luxury. They've always used, and w- which I, I really, really like, they try to give local kids in that area, they've got a radius of people that they select, so do Sunderland. However, it's going to be interesting over the next few years to see how they're going to change that whole holistic approach and philosophy of the club to maybe bring one or two exceptional players in from around Europe to the younger um, levels for their youth team or they're going to stick by the policy that they have at that um, football club and just sign players for the first team. It's going to be very, very interesting, but they're definitely going to spend money on the academy in the region and the, it's going to create more jobs for people at the, at the club in, in the region. So I'm all for it. And, and, and what Bridgie was saying there as well about as long as they stick to the rules, as long as they play by the rules, uh, and if they don't, they should be punished. Like, you know, Chelsea signed underage players. They signed a lot of underage players. They shouldn't have been signing them. Um, PSG, there was a number of... Uh, they have to be held accountable if they break the rules. But um, what, what's impressive about what Chelsea do, just knowing it a little bit more in, insight into it, is even if you look at last summer, they sold five or six players to generate enough money to buy the likes of Lukaku. I mean, I think the net spend was only a couple of million last season. So they're, they're balancing the books really, really well. And I think that that's also what Chelsea and Abramovich was insistent upon a couple of years, quite a few number of years ago now. I know at the beginning it wasn't the case. I get that. and I totally understand it. But once they got a base, once they got to a certain level, it's about balancing the books. Um, and as long as they all do that, I don't have a problem with it. Schwartz, is, is Roman Abramovich the greatest football club owner of all time? 
Uh, listen, he's he's got to be up there with one of the best, right? I mean, is he the great? I mean, who knows? But he's certainly one of the best and one of the most successful. And I just know that Chelsea really do try and run it now like a, it's a business. It's running. It's like balancing the books. It's trying to run it self-sufficiently without having those injections of cash, which is what they can't do anymore. It happened at the beginning, like I said, but now they don't do it. And, and, and they can't do it. They can't afford to do it. Um, and if they were to do it and they get caught, then they have to suffer the consequences, like just like everyone else. But I'd like to think that that's not the route. They're, they're certainly not taking that route. Um, has he done an incredible job? Yes, because even yeah. though he's had a... Look know, at the trophy cabinet. Uh, well, abso- absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And and the interesting thing about it is, you know, the, the method of which they've been successful. You know, the ruthlessness of sacking managers bringing in success the manager side of things has been ruthless but it's been successful they've come across a model that for my understanding wasn't the intention initially but they've been successful doing it so they've followed a certain path um that was i think that's the only side of chelsea and abramovich that i did not like I loved the players yeah. that they were signing. I loved the way they played the game. I loved the trophies that they were winning. And I just thought the turnover of managers, I thought that, like you say, it's cutthroat, it was ruthless. And it's the only thing I didn't like that put a tarnish on what Abramovich was all about. I, I think I, I think there's there's a number of things that, you know, you, 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 you with the investment, you, you're, you're wanting success. You're wanting inst- instant success, right? So uh, I think a couple of years ago when Frank was the manager, Frank Lampard, there was obviously a, a bit of a readjustment because they couldn't buy any players in the transfer window, so they had to, to find the balance of bringing through the youth. And it was the best thing, that I think, in my opinion, the, one of the best things that happened to Chelsea was that 12 months, 18 months of transfer ban. It enabled them to bring through talented players and give them an opportunity. And I, I don't know whether or not... I don't know whether Chelsea would have the, the likes of Mason Mount, Reese James in their team right now had they have not had that period of time. I don't think they would have been given an opportunity. They may have been given the odd one or two games, but they wouldn't have been given the opportunities that they were given through that period of time. You know, Tamori. I mean, I know they didn't keep him in the end, but they still were able to play him and then sell him on and make money out of him. Um, one would argue they didn't get enough money for him. But you know, that, that's another thing. That's another argument altogether. That's the other thing they're not afraid to do. Give the players a go. They think they're not good enough. Um, then they'll they'll sell them, and they're not afraid to sell them, and they're not afraid for them to go and do elsewhere, be well, be good, be successful, and they're not afraid of that. That's the first time in fifty six episodes I've actually enjoyed listening to something you've said. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Tammy Abraham. Well, Tammy Abraham's wow. another one, another great example that did incredibly well. Would he have been given yeah. an opportunity to make his breakthrough into the first team? Yes, but very limited and certainly would never have been given the run of games that he were given in the team had it not been for the transfer ban. So I think there's been a real big realignment of the way that they operate within Chelsea Football Club because of that transfer ban, and it's it's a very big positive. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, and the loan system as well is something that's going to have to change for Chelsea, but they've been so successful with that system and having partner clubs around Europe. Bridgie, you are a man that's played football all around the world from the glitz and glam of Champions League semi-finals to a club like Newcastle Jets, which for years no one really knew who owned it. Were, any Any shocker stories? 
that you've got of club owners getting involved or just any shambles that you witnessed throughout your career? Oh, mate, please. I've been at Leeds United at the, you know, the, the peaks under Peter Ridsdale when he was signing the, the best young talent from around England. You know, we're getting Rio Ferdinand in. Um, unbelievable. We got Olivia Decor, we got Mark Viduca, and we were flying high. But obviously, behind the scenes, things were going on. And the next thing you know, we're selling people like Don Matteo and Mark Viduca because. Leeds United actually didn't own them. They were, you know, it's going to be interesting. Mark Viduka's doing an interview, um, I think, with Don Matteo in a couple of weeks' time. He's flying back into Leeds. Viduka has been missing. I know Optus Sport had the privilege of having a chat with him with Swartzy when there was a few few things were going on with the FFA. So it's going to be interesting to see his take on it. Um, but Ridsley was fantastic. I really did enjoy it. But then I came over to Australia and we were bought by an owner, Nathan Tinkler. Um, the mining magnet and you know he flew over the LA Galaxy and David Beckham to have a game in Newcastle and showcase what the Jets was all about and we were like my word how times have changed here and he only asked one thing he asked David Beckham if he could actually because you know he was he was an enigma we never saw Nathan Tinkler he asked Bex if he could come and have one picture in his office which was just for about a hundred meters from the hotel where the players were staying um, we snuck a limousine out left of the hotel the paparazzi followed it we snuck another white one out to the right the paparazzi followed that and then we put Bex in the boots in the in my mate's ute under the tarpon and we drove literally out the hotel around the corner in under Nathan's underground park in genuine got him out went upstairs for a photo and there's a guy called Ken Edwards there um, who was one of the club execs at the time and myself and David Beckham were stood there with the young lad Ben Kantorowski and we were waiting for Nathan to turn up and he didn't bother turning up for a photograph oh, after paying all that money so I saw this there was there was these Penfold Grange wines in the corner and there was a box of them for David Beckham as a thank you and I was like I was looking at them and I saw another box and um, the other box were for Nathan Tinkler on the bottom and I said you know what it is stuff like I said there's one for you Ken there's one for you Kantorowski I'm taking one Bex can have the box and I said stuff him you know I thought it was just really really rude of the guy of what he was what he did and then the decline came afterwards mate and it was just an absolute shambles from top to bottom players not getting paid you know remember Ali Abbas Sydney, yeah, Sydney yeah. FC the players were chipping in to pay Ali Abbas's rent to keep him going. Um, the, all the lads that were the visa players, we, we were literally chipping money in to pay for Ali Abbas so he could not get kicked out of his rental apartment. So we, we galvanised as a team together, but the owner, mate, gone. Good luck, good riddance. Wow. Damn, you get it all. Schwartz, you missed out not coming down to the A-League. As you can see, you missed out on some great stories. You know that? No. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, I, I had an interesting owner at Fulham, Muhammad um, Al Fayed. Were you was, there with him? Were you? Was, I mean, listen. I was Lee there Clark him, tells yeah, some uh, classics about the the stuff you used to get from Harrods. Yeah, no, he was uh, he was a very generous man, and particularly, I mean, at the time I was there anyway, we we had a lot of success when when he was the chairman, and um, <clears throat> he was obviously loving it, and Roy was brilliant, and. Um, where that European runs, he would come every every home game and he'd walk around the stadium and wave to all the fans and everything else and he'd come around the players and he'd give us these little blue sweeties and he'd go, here, here's a bit of a help for you. This will, this will give you a bit of extra energy today. What yeah, was it, Viagra? And, well, he always made out as if they were, but they were just little sweets, right? And Because um, I tried it and didn't work. No, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
Um, but I remember one time we had Mark Hughes after Roy had left and Mark Hughes, well, actually before that, uh, yeah, Mark Hughes was there actually. And, um, when he first arrived and I wanted to leave to go to Arsenal and he, and, uh, and Alfayed calls me into these, his office at the stadium at the, on the game day, I was out injured and he called me in and said, right, what's wrong with you? And I go, oh, I've got a bad back. I'm out injured. And obviously a lot of it was down to the fact that I was trying to push through the move and he wouldn't let, they wouldn't let me go. Anyway, and he's saying, listen, the, you know, we we want you to stay. We want to give you a new contract. You know, we're a family club. I'll make you wealthy, blah, blah, blah. And he started pulling out 50-pound notes out of his top pocket and started handing them to me. And I'm like, oh, Mr. Fire, you know, listen, thank you very much, but I don't want you. I don't want the money. You know, just keep it, keep it to yourself. And he's got his eldest son sitting there on the sofa and just sort of looking straight ahead into the abyss, not even looking. It was the way it was positioned, the room it was really weird. He wasn't even looking at us and it was like he didn't say a word and Fayad was just he was honestly he was on a different planet. And in the end he was like, Well if they don't pay if they don't pay your transfer fee, what we think you're worth, you're not going anywhere. And I said, Well what, what do you think? He goes, Well if you don't pay ten million pounds, I go, But Mr. Fayad, I'm, I'm thirty seven <laughs> years old, who's gonna pay ten million pounds for me? Goes, they don't I wouldn't have paid ten million for you at your pick. <laughs> exactly. And then he calls <laughs> then he calls then he call, he says to me, Right Think about it and give me a call and let me know what you think. So next day I called him and said, "Listen, Mr. Fight, I've had a thought. I've had a think about it, and I've, I'm not. I'm, you know, I don't want to. I, I don't want to be disrespectful, but it's an unbelievable opportunity. I really want to take it." And he said, "Well, if they pay ten million, then you can go. Otherwise, you're staying." And that was basically the end of the conversation. And I didn't speak mm-hmm. to him again um, for well for a long, long time. Um, and he did give me a new contract in the end because they wouldn't let me go. So yeah, how many right. fifty? How many fifty pound notes are in that contract? Uh, quite, a <laughs> quite a lot. <laughs> Whenever I hear his name, I think of the Michael Jackson statue. Yeah, statue. Yes, what, was, yeah. what was the reaction yeah. of the players there? Like, um, it was like, really? Like, yeah. what the hell is that doing here? But yeah. then everyone went, well, kind of works for him. It's it's just yeah. it was fired, and the fans were the same. They just went, oh yeah. Yeah, Mr. Fayed. Yeah, he's just—he he was on a different planet, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, he really was. But he—he he was great. He—he he, he was great. And and once I went, so Mark Hughes was still there, right? So first six months of Mark Hughes' time at the club, he we we went through a really bad patch. He tried to change the system, and then he said he wasn't going to change anything. And then he went, all right, we're going to change one little thing, and it just wasn't working. And we're away at Stoke City. Um, actually, just before that, we had a team meeting at the training ground, and, and fight, Mr. Fayed came to the training ground. And he, Mark Hughes wasn't great in front of a crowd. He can't look at people in, in the face. Like as a manager, you can believe it, right? It's weird. He doesn't like talking to, in front of the group. He doesn't like standing in front of them. He would never look at anyone. He, he was so most of the time he'd be looking down anyway. So he's there. He gets up and he goes, "Right, Mr. Fayed's here. Would like to say a few words." So he comes out and Mark Hughes starts to walk towards the back of the room and he grabs hold of him. Fayed grabs hold of him and says, no, 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 you come here and stand here next to me. And then he turns and went, so you tell me, why is this team not performing? And he says, the manager goes, well, he doesn't he sort of shrugs his shoulders and he turns to the players and goes, is it because of him? <laughs> Shall I sack him now? No. Shall I get rid of him right no. now? Is he not good enough? I'm telling you. And then we're going, we're like, going, we're like, honestly, you're squirming in your seat. You just go, oh, my God, what is he doing? And they're like, Danny Murphy's the captain. And 
after about literally 30 seconds of silence, he goes, oh, Mr. Fayette, no, no, no. Look, we, we as players have to take responsibility as well, blah, blah, blah. Um, even though we were kind of thinking, well, yeah, he's been shit, really, but no, we can't. Because <laughs> um, he, was, he was good. The, the, whole, the whole coaching staff were great and the way things were changing, there was great ideas. It was some stuff were really good. Other bits weren't great. Anyway, long story, we go to Stoke and the night before in the hotel, Danny Murphy comes down for dinner and goes, right, guys, there was a few of us, the senior players, he goes, right, I've just got a phone call, got off the phone. One of the directors said, if we lose tomorrow at Stoke, he's gone. So it's plays, you're sitting there going, far out. Like, that's a bit that's a bit harsh. But I suppose you can see it coming. But then we're like, yeah, but we don't really want to go because you're better the devil you know than the devil you don't know, right? So we're like, right. So the next day, we go, right, you know what we're going to do? We'll give ourselves the best opportunity to win this game. Away at Stoke, I think it was a Tuesday night. It was like rainy, windy. It was such, like, ridiculous. It's like you watching Burnley in your back garden. You just wouldn't watch them, right? So you go on to Stoke, <laughs> and they're mad, right? And then, and then basically, we go. All right, we're going to go back to playing like we played under Roy. So rather than show everyone down the line, we're going to show them all inside. So went okay, right. So the manager gave his gave his speech 10, 15 minutes before we go to kickoff, and he walks out of the room. He did it every week, same thing. So the minute he walked in the, out of the room, me, Breda Hangerland, and Danny Murphy stood up and went, right, guys, we're not doing that. We're going back to where we played under Roy. We're going to show him inside. We're doing this, blah blah. We're doing that. And uh, we went out there and we won 2 0. Chris Baird played left back, scored both goals. And he never said a word until probably about three months later when he went, Right, I know you've gone back to the way you want to play under, <laughs> under Roy, and that's fine. You're obviously happy with it. Yeah, can just keep doing it. And that was it. <laughs> Unbelievable. So, yeah. Brilliant. Wow. Wow, yeah. I love I love the story time. We're going to stick with Fulham. Actually, I want to talk about them because Schwartzy. It's almost like the glory days might be coming back to Fulham. You can't help but feel like there's a good sense in the air at the moment, Bridgie. What is the biggest difference from last season? I know you're a big fan of the championship. What is the biggest difference now with this Fulham side? This Fulham side are playing attractive football. I think Marcus Silva's given them a whole new lease of life, mate. It's it's um, it's actually a joy to watch the forward forward play the amount of final third entries that they are getting at this moment in time is just superb and when you've got a man like Mitrovic who I just believe is a complete championship player um, you know Rafa Benitez at Newcastle said to him you know when you're at Newcastle United you've got to go out on loan you've got to play in the championship and prove your worth and he did and he went and absolutely smashed it up came back to Newcastle did not get an opportunity and he's found himself at Fulham and in the Premier League again, scored a few goals. But when he's gone back to the Championship yet again, he just ceases to believe. So it's, I think it's been great. And, you know, Harry Wilson, another player that I really, really enjoy watching as well. Uh, not forgetting they've lost some players. You know, I'm quite happy for Tottenham to give Session back to Fulham because I think he's been horrible as a wing back. Quite happy to see him go. But I really, really enjoy watching him. I think they're forward. Yeah. I think under Mourinho, Chelsea, you know, he was a one-nil man. You win with clean sheets. Silva has got this team ticking, and the the players look like they are just enjoying playing with a freedom. Nobody's going to stop them. Yeah, well, it does. It seems that way, but you know, famous last words. You never know in the championship. It can be a tough. I know exactly the role that they are on. Sunderland under Peter Reid, we had the same dynamics. He had a freedom for us to play. He had two players in every position and we just, every game that was coming, we were un unbeatable, unstoppable. I just see that momentum with this team. Well, more goals per game than Man City, right? So they are the most prolific side in English football at the moment. Schwartzy, they came up to the Prem, of course, 
last time and it just seemed like they were a little bit off the pace. Does this squad look a little bit different and do you think they can cut it in the Premier League? Particularly that man, Mitrovic, who's just equaled Ivan Tony's record. He's got 16 games to go, so he just needs one goal. You'd, you'd think, you'd think he'll score a fair few more. Is he ready to be a Premier League striker and are Fulham ready to be a Premier League serious contender? So I'll answer the first bit of that first question is that are they going to be good enough to play in the Premier League? No. Um, is Mitrovic going to score goals only if they continue to give him the service, play to his strengths? Because when they did, when they in the Premier League last year, they didn't. They didn't play to his strengths. He hardly played. He was in and out of the team. Um, are the team good enough to sustain Premier League survival? Unlikely. I don't think so. I think defensively they're not good enough. Um, they've been. Listen, let's not let's not beat around the bush, right? The Championship is a really good league, right? It's a really competitive league. Right. It's you know, end to end stuff. There's forty, you know, forty six games. Anyone can beat anyone, but it's a long way off the Premier League in terms of standard overall. Mm-hmm. Um, Fulham, by far and above, have got the best squad in the in the Championship, and also have the highest. I think I think the highest wage bill. So, Marco Silva's done a really, has done a good job, right? But I, I think it's the dream job at this moment in time in the Championship. The challenge will be. Obviously, getting in there still because it, they're not, by no means are they there yet. However, then is what they do in the in the Premier League. They need to sign four or five really good, established Premier League players, not just players from abroad like they've always done in the past. Okay. Well, what is it about the difference between the Championship and the Premier League? Because you look at even last year's teams that got promoted, Brentford were the playoff winners, whereas Watford, Norwich were... Yeah. And that happens so often where sometimes the playoff winner or the team that comes second, they end up doing far better in the Premier League than that team that blitzed the Championship. Is it a style of football that makes a difference? M- momentum as well. Like So winning winning through the, the playoff final and, and that run like Brentford did... Um, that they carry that momentum onwards, right? And and the the vibe, the atmosphere. I was at the first game of the season, Brentford against Arsenal. It was a cauldron. It was an unbelievable atmosphere. Arsenal heavily under strength because of COVID and other issues, um, and were bullied, were were shocked, like they were just blown away, right? Um, but then we're seeing where Brentford are right now. Brentford need Ivan Tony. They desperately need Ivan Tony back on the side because no one up front can hold the ball without him. And they need creativity because, like the other day um, uh, against Crystal Palace, they had zero creativity and they lost They lost their, their momentum. They lost their energy. And if you lose that energy, a bit like Sheffield United did last year, you, you, you fall away very, very quickly. Brentford in danger of being sucked back in there. Um so and hist- history suggests this as well because three seasons ago Sheffield United had a good goal yep. and then it was Leeds United's turn there's always one of the team now it's Brentford's there always seems to be one of them teams that comes up as the ones that you know showcase themselves whereas the other two kind of you know, it's always going to be a battle and having suffered relegation from the Premier League if you don't get a good start and you don't recruit well and you don't get numbers on board because the the squad depth going into the Premier League is, is huge um, because I remember something we did have enough players in that Premier League season when we got some injuries and suspensions it really cost us and I'm I'm ta- not talking about numbers I'm talking about quality we had a very very good 15 but outside of that you know you're, you're, you're picking up players that are in the championship and it's not going to keep you in the Premier League no no, because you can't underestimate how important the experience is of playing in the Premier League you know you, you can have momentum you can get results you can you can scrape it in but then fall away like Bridget was saying there like we mentioned Sheffield United it's about rec- recruitment is so important. 
Um, look, if you look at go back to Fulham again. If you if you look at their best players, right? We talk about Mitrovic. We've already talked about him. Lack of goals in the Premier League. Every time they've been back up, he was in and out of the team. They ne- they kind of went away from playing with him because they went for more mobility rather than the the, the you know the, the strength and the holding the ball up and play to his play to him. He's coming up against better defenders as well, Mitrovic. Yep. Saying that, he does score goals for Serbia, yeah. right? So he, he does score internationally. Tom County. Tom County is a good championship player. He he is he is in my opinion, he's not good enough to be a player that's going to make a difference for you in the Premier League. Yeah. So Claude, there's, there's twenty or thirty world class players in the championship. There is hundreds in the Premier League. That is the that's the difference. It's a it's a quality. Quality over quantity. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, 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 for one, feel like sometimes when I look at these teams, it's like often the ones that are playing, because you look at Fulham, they're playing brilliant football in the championship. Sometimes that doesn't transpire to the Premier League. It is maybe those teams that are more physical and run their heads off and this rock solid. I remember, you know, Mila Yedinex, Crystal Palace, when they went up, maybe yeah. they are suited better because at least they've got that physicality. Whereas you're outplaying teams in the championship, like Schwartzy said, you're not going to go and outplay and roll teams in the Premier League. We've seen it with Leeds recently. Well, look at... Look at Norwich. Yeah. Look at Norwich. How good at Norwich have been in the last couple of years yeah. where they've been back in the championship and got promoted. How f- they, were, they were like miles above yeah. everyone else. Yeah. They were so much better than everyone else. The type of football they played, the style of football, they tried to bring in the Premier League yeah. with the same players and they're not good enough. Yeah. It's it. Unfortunately. Yeah. Listen, they may prove me wrong this season and that may be only because of Dean Smith because mm-hmm. they've got a new manager in who's maybe... I still don't think they've got enough to stay in. Yeah, well... Bridgie, you called them going down with the worst points record in the history of the Prem. They've proved you wrong so far. They've done quite well there, but I want to talk... Here we go. If they had have had Farker, they would have gone down with the worst points in the league. If I did not I did not look into my nostril dormer's crystal ball and see Dean Smith going. If I had have seen that happening, I would have suggested otherwise. Small print. I didn't see the small print in that at all. I think he got it completely wrong, let's be honest. Yeah, he got it completely wrong. That's fine. We all do it sometimes. Except for Mark Schwarzer, of course, never gets anything. No, wrong, I get it? I get it wrong as well, don't you? <laughs> I mean um, you talk about now, you look at that bottom that bottom three, who yeah. who are gonna go down? Try and work that one out now. Yeah, it's tough. It is tough, especially with all the games in hand. It's just so hard to call. You think, you know, you do the maths. If Burnley win this many, but it's not said that they're going to win it. I want to talk about the top four race, though, because, uh, Bridgie, your Tottenham's involved in this one. Tottenham, West Ham, Man United all drop points over the weekend. Wolves are in an incredible run of form, and it was a solid win for them. And are they all of a sudden in a box seat to play European football next season? Yes, of course they are. Anybody in that mix um, from Spurs who are in eighth with 36 points all the way up, you know, Spurs, <laughs> Wolves, Arsenal, Man United and West Ham, they're all having a massive challenge for that spot. Can Brighton get in there? I don't know. It'll be, But they're still in the mix in ninth position. And I look at the form guide, it really hurts me because you see all these green ticks for the teams that are from, you know, Spurs and above from seventh. And then I look at Spurs who are in eighth and they've just got three X's next to their name from the last three matches. They've they've had a horrendous run. They've thrown themselves, I think, out of the mix. And I would still like to see, I'm not going to say Arsenal, obviously, I would like to see West Ham get in there and take that. But nobody wants it at this moment in time. And, and West Ham have played the most amount of games. And the team that are looking more likely at this moment in time are Wolves, without a shadow of a doubt. And I think that was one of Swartz's managers to get sacked, be the first manager to get sacked of the season. So he does get things wrong. <laughs> um, did I say Wolves? I don't think I did. I, I think I said... Oh, you um, said Lars to get sacked. We'll have to go back and check the archives, mate. We'll, we'll, maybe we'll I, maybe I did. I, I thought I got a bit confused and I meant Spurs manager at the time. 
<laughs> right, there you go. <laughs> the guy that our back and said would yeah, do one, great. Yeah, the one that you said yeah. was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. but, see, but I'll what? tell you what, the top four's been brilliant to watch though, isn't it? Yeah. It has been. I, I, I mean, Spurs, to be fair, let's be honest, the last couple of games, they have been woeful. Mm. Honking. Have, what's happened? The wheel's fallen off. Um, you know, Conte, players rebelling now against his hard methods. What, what is it? Who knows? That is the million dollar. I don't get paid the big bucks to make them decisions. But, I, you know, since he came in, he's definitely made a, a difference. You saw that in the results. Now, this is a true test of character and resolve, not only for the players in the next few matches, but also the manager as well. Because this, I think this will define... Um, what happens next season? Definitely, I think there's gonna they, they need a clean out. I still think some of them players there are a bit of dead wood, and they need a kick up the arse. Well, there's yeah. a few and I think like it's a there's a few teams. I know. Like well, I think United. it's a good fresh start. They're get Pochettino back for next season. Oh, Man United. Well, you've, you've, he's gonna, he's gonna be at Man United. He's gonna we, he's gonna go to Man United. There's, that, there's no doubt about that at all. And I'm gonna say I reckon Man United are not gonna finish Champions League at all this season. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't think so, but uh, it's been, you'd know more, you're on the ground there in London, Schwartzy, that I've been hearing these rumours, which is quite remarkable. I can't remember the last time I ever heard anything about a manager for player swap deal, but the rumours are that if uh, Mauricio Pochettino goes to United, it's on the condition that PSG will get Cristiano Ronaldo the other way. Have you heard much about that? Yeah, there has been talk about it, and I, and I actually think Man United would jump at it. I think they would like they would do it right now if they could. I think, uh, and there's a lot of talk over here about Cristiano Ronaldo and, um, you know, obviously, you know, age is not necessarily always. It generally, the problem is it all catches up with everyone, right? So age yeah. is a factor. No matter what you say, no matter how well you look after yourself, how hard you train, mm. and also he needs the right players around him, right? So he's not getting the service, and then when he has had the opportunities. Previous Cristiano Ronaldo's would have taken him, and he's missed too many chances. Um, it is very harsh. Listen, the guy. Is how an many? Incredible player. How many shirt sales is Pochettino going to sell if he becomes a manager? How much money and revenue are Manchester United going to lose by letting Ronaldo go? That is not an easy decision. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know anymore. Is he still generating that much money, Ronaldo, for them in shirt sales and stuff? Without a shadow of a doubt. Even now, like I mean, I know at the beginning. Even now, I know when they signed him. But now. His son's just signed, so they're going to sell even more. <laughs> yeah. 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 They're, the, they're the politics but, but, you've got to look at behind the yeah, scenes. I get that. Man United are great for it. Man United are renowned for it. Look at Paul Pogba. Yeah. There, there can't be any other reason why they would keep him, in my opinion. Yeah. Because he certainly hasn't delivered on a football pitch. It's an interesting conversation, because I had this conversation with Robbie Savage on the weekend about Paul Pogba, and I said to him, would you keep him? And he said, yes. And I said, why? And he goes, well, he's a fantastic player. And I go, well, for France he has been, but not for Manchester United. You could probably put it on one hand how many times he's played really, really well for more than 45 minutes for Man United. I mean, I don't even think you've got... I don't, you, you'll only need one hand. Um, and every season he's injured for a long period of time. Then every season is speculation about him going, this club, that club, all the time. And that's that's... That's self-created. That's not genuine interest. You, you know why he's always injured for more than 90 days? Because he goes and spends it in Dubai so he can save on tax. Well, that's one for your clothes if you want a journalism story. Hmm. Oof. Wow. There you go. We're dropping, we're dropping bombs here. Um, yeah, I'm dropping fantastic. bombs too, right? It's that's true. Bridges, yeah. Bridges had that special morning coffee, mate. He's been throwing them in today. I love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah. I mean, you're not wrong. It just looks like a, a bit of a toxic environment, doesn't it? When you look at that change room and you look at the way players are speaking out against the manager. Oh, no, he's wrong. He hasn't got that right. Why would, you, why would you have the best club in the world with the best facilities, right? The best rehab centers and potentially the best physios and doctors, but you've got to go and spend time in Dubai? 
I just, I'm telling you, man, it stinks. Firstly, I don't, I don't understand how the club even allow it, right? I don't, that, that I don't get. I don't get a club like Manchester United would allow a player to spend that much time abroad. And I, I'm going to say it now. Unless I'm, unless I'm completely, like, off, the, off my rockers, I can't imagine. Would a player do that? Would you, would, could you imagine a player knowing I've got to take 90 days off a year to make sure I spend... I can't imagine anyone doing that. He just seems to get injured for a certain yeah, amount of time every year, and he always that. seems to have 90 days out of yeah, the country. I'll tell you, he's been there five years. Bye. Have a look into it. No, no, I'm not saying it's not true. I, I, I'm just saying I'm not buying that he's done it intentionally. That's all I'm going to say. Mm. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, and I'd like to think that that could never happen. I'm probably naive. You like, then I would like to like, think the same thing. Yeah. You'd like to think that football's still got some dignity in it, Schwartz. I don't know. I don't know. But it is shambles for Manchester United. But uh, we're going to watch that top four race. One thing is, if the title race is over, which I don't think it is just yet, but if the title race isn't the most interesting this season, at least we've got a cracking top four race. And, of course, it's going to be a great relegation battle that's going to go right down to the end of the season. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And gentlemen, I'm going to take this opportunity on the show, given that the J-League starts here on Optus Sport this week. It's a cracking league, plenty of talent, and we've got a fair bit of Aussie influence in there as well. I'm going to welcome to the podcast Asian football expert Paul Williams to give us a bit of a breakdown on what we can expect. Paul, thanks for joining us. Claude, it's great to be with you. Mate, uh, the J-League, you know, since since we picked it up on Optus, I can safely say I've watched a whole lot more of it. So much quality, and I think with the whole Ange Postacoglu era, now the Kevin Musket was so mm. close last year, but we've seen so much Kawasaki dominance over the last few years. Are we expecting more of the same, or is Kevin with a shot here? Uh, Kev's definitely in with a shot. I mean, it's going to be a brave man to, to tip against Kawasaki. They've created an absolute dynasty in the J-League. If, if they win the title this season and they go in as absolute hot favourites, it'll be five titles in six seasons, which is a dominance like we haven't seen before in the J-League, which traditionally is, is very, very competitive. Um, you often see different teams winning the, the championships. So to have one side dominate for so long um, is is quite remarkable. Of course, that was only punctuated by Ange Postacoglu's um, Yokohama F. Marinos winning the, the title in, in 2019. So Yokohama are definitely in with a shout, but I think there's a few other teams as well. Urawa Reds have, have definitely improved. They won the Super Cup against Kawasaki on the weekend 2-0. I think they're definitely in with a shout. And of course, Vissel Kobe, Andreas Iniesta, um, they've recruited very, very well in the off-season, or not even the off-season, going back to the end of last season. Uh, they lost, of course, Kyoga Furuhashi to, to Ange Postacoglu Celtic, um, and they replaced him with uh, with Yoshi Muto and um, Yuya Osako as well, two um, experienced Japanese internationals. I'm a big fan of Muto, so I think they've more than adequately covered the, the loss of, uh, of Kyogo, um, and I definitely think they're within a shout as well. So it's, it should be a, a much more um, challenging, much more entertaining and competitive title race this season. 
Paul Michael Bridges here. I've got to jump in because I am very excited about this league starting. And obviously, since Ange Postecoglou had gone there, took a bit more of an interest. Um, can you just give us the marquee players or some of the superstars that will be joining the league this year? Because I'm one of them entertaining players that love to watch these exciting goal scoring machines. So, who we got to look forward to? Mm. Well, not just joining the league, but if we go back over the last couple of years, you can't go past Andreas Iniesta. I mean, he's one of the world's greatest footballers of all time, really. Such a smooth operator. And he's 37 years of age, but shows no signs whatsoever of, of slowing down. He's still um, the, the key man for that Vissel Kobe side in the midfield. He had a, a, an electric partnership with Kyogos. I'm interested to see whether he can re-establish that partnership with a, a new strike force. Uh, they've gone and, and signed another former Barcelona star as well, Bayern Kirkic, who I spoke to for, for Optus Sport recently as well. You can read that piece on the uh, on the website and the app now. Um, he was uh, labelled the next Messi when he burst onto the scene, broke into the Barcelona side at, uh, at 17. Um, he's had a, a big career right across Europe at a, a number of big famous clubs, you know, Milan, Ajax as well. So um, he's a star to look out for. Other than that, you've, you've got some, you know, some players that generally aren't going to um, be, you know, well known to people outside the J League, but someone at Kawasaki like Leandro Damiao, who scored 23 goals last year, was the Golden Boot winner. Chanatip Songkrasin, Thai international that Australian fans will will be familiar with. He's moved now from Sapporo to the champions, Kawasaki. Um, and then you've got someone that I really like. Is that the boy they call the little Messi? The little Messi. Messi J, as they call him in, in Thailand. There you yeah. go. Yes. So he's, he is loved in Thailand. He absolutely is. He's a hero there. And, and he's moved. Big move for him in the offseason. Big opportunity for him because he's moved to the champions, Kawasaki. So puts him on a much bigger stage now playing Champions League football as well. Um, and then at, at some of the other clubs, you've got Kasper Juncker at, at Urawa who I really like. Um, he played for uh, but a glimp to, uh, of course, Ange Postacoglu's Celtic will face in the uh, the Conference League in a couple of weeks. Um, he scores goals for fun as well. So there's there's no shortage of great players in the J-League. Yeah, brilliant, Paul. I actually saw another article. You plugged that one, but I saw another article come out on Optus Sport yesterday that you wrote as well. Mm. What Australian football can learn from the J-League. A house is only as good as its foundation. And quite an interesting read. Do you think you could summarise that for the Gagan Pod listeners? Like, what are the biggest takings that you've had from Japanese football, from watching it so closely and what we need to learn as also part of the Asian Confederation, what we need to learn from, from a nation like Japan? Mm. It, it, it speaks for itself, the headlines. It, it's the foundations. It's getting the foundations right. So when you look at Japan and the system that they've got now, they've got the three tiers. They've got J1, J2, J3. They've got 58 professional clubs. So if you're a player that's coming through that system, you can come through the high school system, the university system. You might be part of a, a club's academy as well, which is all funded. So it's not, you know, which players have got the most money. Um, you will get an opportunity somewhere else. And as I mentioned in the piece, you look at the, the players who went to, to Celtic to join Ange and they've all come through different pathways. But the, the one that stands out for me is players like, Kyogo Furuhashi and, and Daisen Maeda, who started their careers in, in J2, and it gave them a really good standing board before they got the opportunity in J1. And we just don't have that in Australia. We don't have that situation where a player can get their footing in a second division and then take the step up uh, into the A-League. And, and how many players are, are we missing out on um, um, within the Australian system who, who just are not getting the opportunities because they're so limited within Australia with, you know, was it 12 professional clubs and and limited squad sizes at that as well so that's the that's the key for Australia is you've got to get your foundations right you've got to get your structure right you need a national second division you need proper youth development pathways so the players that are coming through have got somewhere to go 
when they can't break into a, a team like Melbourne Victory or Adelaide United or whoever it might be, they can drop back down into a second division, play a year or two and get some professional football under their belt. That's what happens in Japan. And they're reaping the benefits because, you know, they've got a handful of players that would walk into this Socceroo site who can't even get into their national team. Paul, the, the leagues are aligned though, aren't they? I mean, we're not, we're not talking about the, the, the J-League playing at one time of the year and we're talking yep. about J2 and the rest are playing at different times of the year, right? So they all work in conjunction. They all work in conjunction. They're all operated by the, the one body, which is the, the, the J-League itself. They operate all three leagues and, and, and they're constantly expanding. You know, J3 is expanding to, to 18 teams this year. They have a big 100-year vision in, in Japan to get to 100 professional clubs by the end of this century. They're at 58 now um, and, and they're marching on, you know, progressively to get to that target and, and, the question for me in Australia is, is what are we doing? You know, we, we keep talking about it. we keep talking about a second division and, and structural changes, but we don't we don't ever get to see it. And you can see that it's affecting our national team and the results. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't even think we have a ten year plan, let alone a hundred year plan. I mean, that's impressive. Obviously, the budget. <laughs> I was going to say hundred. Yeah, days well, it, I mean, the budget's obviously completely different as well. So, I mean, they've, mm. they're a long way ahead of us, and there's a long way to go. Uh, I want to go back to Aussie players playing in the J League. Um, Mitch Langerak. Yep. Is he the best goalkeeper in the J League? And are we missing a treat with not with him now retiring from the national team? It's a great shame he retired. For me, he should be our, our number one at the moment, just based purely on, on the form he's producing. Uh, clearly the best keeper in, in the J League. He, he smashed the, uh, the, the clean sheets record last year that he'd only set... You know the previous year as well. Um, he, he played in a side that that had a very strong defence as well, which definitely helped him out. A goalkeeper, as you would know, Schwartzy, is only as good as the defence that's in it's in front of you. You can do as much as you want, but if you've got a porous defence, then uh, you're going to be in trouble. So he had a really good defence in front of him, but produced some fantastic saves as well. Definitely the the best keeper in the league. Adam Taggart's an interesting one. He had a, a big move from Korea to Japan to join Cerezo. Didn't quite work out for him. His entry into the country was delayed because they had a state of emergency and no um, foreign players could actually get in and, and, and when he got there it was a bit late, um, he was playing catch up, only scored the, the one goal um, in 12 matches and now they've brought in reinforcements in attack as well so he's going to face stiffer competition this year as well so I, I hope he can break into that Cerezo side and do well because it, it bodes well for the, the Socceroos if he can um, but they're the, the two headline Socceroos in, in J1 this season to look out for. Brilliant stuff, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us, guys. I'd like to take this opportunity as well to throw to it because on the Optusport app, you can get everything you need to know to make sure you're up to date with the latest J-League news. And there is also an exclusive interview with Kevin Musker that will be dropping on Thursday just before the season kicks off. Paul, thanks so much for joining us this morning on the Gagan Pod, and we're looking forward to an exciting season there. Cheers, guys. Appreciate it. John Aloisi, can we replicate those scenes from 2006? People want more, and to, to replicate that, we need to get through the group stages and go even further, so then we're creating history. I remember walking into the stadium in Stuttgart and having a powerful sense of the history of that moment. Now we are underway in Stuttgart. How incredible is this sport that on this one stage, it can tell such a powerful, unique, incredible story. 
its potential, where it could go if it could shed one or two things and embrace one or two others, are just so much about football, says so much about Australia and vice versa. The amount of people dancing on the street, Federation Square going off and, and you know, just the people uh, having fun. We realised then that actually this could unite a country. The hospitality, the friendliness, the sense of community and all of that, that all comes back to football. It's a community and, you know, parts of Australia, white Australia, there's, there, there never has been a community. It's completely lacking. And I think that's when we'll see that we are changing people's opinion that we're not just a, 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 you know, a sport that, you know, yes, it's well liked here in Australia, but it's not the number one sport. Until then, I don't know if we are going to replicate that. Football Belongs, nine matches that explain Australia. Now, gents, I want to talk about a player who hung up the boots last week and uh, there was plenty of tributes coming out. Moussa Dembele, of course, most recognised for his time at Tottenham Bridgier Club, you're quite fond of. And plenty of those Spurs players came out talking about how good he was, how underrated he was, and maybe didn't get the credit he deserves out in the media, how good he was at training, and all these stories started to come out. Uh, it got me thinking about you guys and whether you had any stories of those players. But just firstly, on Moussa Dembele, how good of a player was he? Was he a little bit underrated, do you feel, Bridgie? I think he was, you know, but I absolutely adore him. I loved his, loved the way he glided with the ball, the way he kept it. And I love players that look like the ball is another part of their body, another limb. And he was one of them players. So I was working the guitar um, for the French Euros and I was got to sit next to one of my heroes, a guy called Clive Allen, who worked at Tottenham Hotspur. And he just said, Bridges, one of the best things I've ever seen um, in training. He said, I can't believe when I was coaching there that we didn't use him enough um, and we, we actually sold him. So just a player that I admire so much, mate, and like you say, it was I thought it was very, very fitting with all the tributes that were coming in from him. But why do you want to hear from me when we've got a man who actually played with him on the podcast, in Mark Swartzer? Yeah, I did. How good was he? Yeah, show? I played with him for two years at Fulham. He came in 2010. Mark Hughes, I think it was his actual first signing. They paid about five and a half million pounds for him. No one really knew of him because he signed him from RZ Alkmaar. Um, and he turned up and, mate, he was unbelievable at training. He was so strong on the ball, like Bridgie was saying, like an extra, like the ball was part of his limb, right? His, his lower body, he, had, he didn't have a lot upper body, right? So it was pretty normal. When you saw him, you just thought, hey, he looks like a bit of a footballer, but doesn't look that strong. He was incredibly strong, so difficult to get the ball off him. And he had an unbelievable strike. I can't believe his stats, actually. I can't believe how few goals he scored. Because when we used to do training, we used to do uh, uh, shooting practice or small-slotted games, he would smack the ball and he'd hit it with such timing and power, it was so difficult to save. Um, the balls would do all sorts. And he just didn't score enough goals. So I think that's also one of the reasons why people probably didn't really give him the credit he deserved. Um Unless you played with him, unless you saw him day in, day out, you really didn't acknowledge and didn't understand exactly what he did for your team and how much of an impact he had on it But uh, because he didn't score enough goals. And that's the only criticism I'll give of him. He didn't score enough goals, but what a player. Really good player. Besides besides Musa Dembele, are there those players? I mean, you mentioned him, how good he was at training. Are there such things as those players that just show you something as a player that played with them that maybe none of us watching from home have ever seen? Well, I had one at Leeds United, a guy, an Irish Republic of Ireland player, Stephen MacPhail. 
The name might not resonate with many people, but the games that he did play, I thought he was incredible. Uh, now, Stephen was exactly the similar player to Dombele without the, the physical presence. Mm-hmm. He had a left foot like a wand. The ball looked like it was glued to his foot. He scored two goals against your team, Claude's Chelsea, when we won down at um, Stamford Bridge. Must have been a long and time ago. That, must that was a few really years ago. Away, you yeah. were, I think it was Frank Leboeuf and um, Desai were the two centre-halves that were kicking right. crap out of me and Harry Kuehl. We didn't get a touch, but Stephen McPhail, two goals. And this celebration was brilliant because we love Macca. And we just didn't feel that he got the he got the just reward that he deserved because he was an unbelievable midfielder. But we went on to sign Olivier Decor. We had David Batty at the time. So he was learning off these guys. But um, Stephen, what a play. He went on to Captain Cardiff had great success and then had a, a real, real bad scare with cancer and now um, is thankfully all right and safe and alive and now coaching over in Ireland. But man, what a player. So underrated. We saw it in training every day. We're like, what What the hell does this kid got to do to get a regular game? And when he did play, he was outstanding, but he was just always in the shadows of the players that we, we'd signed for money. And I still believe Maka, Maka was, um, should have been up there. Now you just reminded me of something. He said Olivier Ducourt. We signed him at Fulham. Uh, Roy signed him on loan uh, from Inter Milan and he, he he had listen he had glimpses right but he was beyond it it was past him um, <laughs> he wasn't good enough to play in the Premier League anymore wasn't able to, he, he wasn't good enough actually to get in our team at Fulham at the time so we're, we're, a, we're a pretty strong side right and he, he couldn't get in the side him and Johnny Pansel just didn't hit it off there's something happened. I don't remember exactly what it was. It was training, tackle. Johnny Pansel was a bit of a nutter. He, he really was. Like he, he, he would get a couple of red cards. He'd just be rash. He'd fight with people. And one day we were at training, and I remember he, Johnny Pansel was going in. So the, the 11 that were going to play or the players, I, think, I can't remember exactly when it was, if it were not long after the last game or not long before the next game. So the 11 were going in or 10 were going in, and Johnny Pansel started to go in, and as he went were going, was going in, he turned around at the corner post, and there was a ball lying there. He turned around and smacked it, and he was aiming for Olivier Decourt, and he smashed it, and it flew like a rocket and hit Olivier Decourt in the back. You and Johnny, don't mess with Ollie. And Johnny, Johnny just turned around and kept walking like nothing had happened, like it wasn't him. But Olivier knew it was him, but he didn't chase after him. He waited until he went in the change room and he went in the change room and they started arguing and then it just kicked off in the change room. They started throwing punches, swinging and everything else. There was me, uh, Pascal Zubabula, the other the reserve goalkeeper, big guy, Matt, like he's, he's, he was, I think an inch taller than me, but wide. And he got in between and we're holding them off and that and right, settle down, settle down, they settle down. Anyway, Johnny steams off naked with his towel under his arm and soap, goes into the shower and then we're like thinking, all right, it's all settled down. Next minute, Olivier goes off into the shower and it kicks off in the shower. So <laughs> there's two naked guys in the shower fighting. <laughs> it's like, it's almost like a rumble, mate. And it's like, you can imagine, like, it's all tiled and everything. You're thinking, oh my God, someone's going to hurt themselves seriously. They yeah, were throwing punches left, right, and center. And basically, wow. there were four of us or five of us in the shower, all naked, trying to break up this fight. <laughs> It was ridiculous, honestly. What a comedy sketch. <laughs> a bit of ancient Greek wrestling going oh, on there mate. At, the, You're not at, wrong. at Fulham. You're not Fantastic. Wrong. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I don't know how we ended up there, but I'm very glad we did, Schwartzy. I'm gonna <laughs> 
I'm going to go to <laughs> I'm going to go to a couple fan questions that rolled in here. I got a question that came in here from Sam who asked, "Do you think that Ange Postecoglou could be ready for the Premier League within the next two seasons?" Oh, listen, there's a long way to go, right? But has to be. What he's done so far has been remarkable. He's been mm. full credit to him. He's done an excellent job. Uh, and I, I, again, I was talking. I was talking to Chris Sutton on the weekend, and I asked him the question because he's he, he played for Celtic, so he's a Celtic fan. He's very critical of Aussies, Aussie footballers, Aussie players playing for Australia, going away, missing out yep. in games. But I said to him, "So tell me, how's Ange done?" And he goes, "I'll tell you what, he has been exceptional. What he has done yep. has been remarkable." And yep. he said, "They are great to watch." And mm. the players, the signings, they haven't got the money. The signings, how shrewd he's been in the transfer uh, market. The, the Japanese players, I think they've signed four, is that right? Four Japanese players? Yeah, four players, yeah. He said, has been excellent. Um, yeah. So, and uh, they've signed also um, uh, a Miffel player, um, uh, O'Reilly, Matt O'Reilly, who was at MK Dons, actually he was at Fulham Academy and I saw him as a kid when he was like 14 years old playing for the 16s. And already then, you know what he reminded me of? He reminded me of Paul Ocon in terms of body shape, already immature, and you could just look at him and go, he is a proper footballer. And yeah. the problem was he had a lot, a lot of injuries and and eventually left uh, Fulham and went to MK Dons and played really well. Celtic have signed him. Yeah. He's gone straight in the first team. He's flying. So Ange has been really, really, really shrewd and Celtic in the transfer, mar- transfer uh, market. Yeah. And to get where they are, last year they were, did they end up losing the title? Something, I think it was Oof. 20 plus points. 20, yeah. over 20 points. So yeah. to be ahead of Rangers at this stage of the season, the turnaround, I think he changed, I think he brought in 12 new players at the start of the season. Yeah, it's massive. Um, it's massive. Yeah, and so... Uh, Chris Sutton was 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 wax you know waxing lyricals about him. Yeah, it's been an incredible move for him, and, and let, let's see what happens now. I think you've got to give it time to come to fruition because we also got to talk European football. We want to see Celtic back fighting for that. He recently, in an interview, gave his his ambition to win the Conference League as well, and he came out and said, you know, I went I went to a World Cup with Australia and envisioned winning it. You got to try and win everything you play in. We're going to talk about the Socceroos though now because I got a question from Isaac Seaton. Isaac, thanks for listening to the pod. Should Cammy Devlin and Atkinson be in the Socceroos squad, Schwartz? Yeah, I can't understand why they're not. Honestly, can't. I mean, Kevin Devlin particularly has been absolutely brilliant for Hearts. Um, the step up has been exceptional. Um, I mean, listen, I get, I get um, why why Arnie is probably sticking with the tried and tested. Right, he's got his squad of players, and he wants to stick with with the experience and everything else. And I get that, and I respect that as a, as an ex player and player it knows that, but. Sometimes when players are playing that well and have, have really come through quickly and done really really well, matured really really well, um, you've got to get him. You've got to get him in the squad at the very least. You've got to get him in there and yeah. you've got to have him in part of the group. Um, Cammy Devlin, everything that everyone said about him at Hearts was his attitude, his work rate, his professionalism. He's made an incredible difference um, to their team. I mean, they're all positives to me. There's nothing negative about the kid. The kid's desperate to play for Australia. Yeah. I, know, I spoke to him for yeah. Optus Sport. He, you know, he's desperate. Yeah. He's living the dream. He can't believe he's... Not that he can't believe. He, you know, he's got to pinch himself where he is right now. Yeah. Um, and the next step would be to play for the Socceroos. 
And we love that attitude, don't we? When you see someone like that with, with that hunger and with that humbleness as well, you want them to wear the Socceroos jersey. That's what it's all about. So I think watch this space. I'd be very surprised if they're not called up soon, but with some big games. It's one, it's, it's that situation, isn't it, Schwartz? Do you throw them into a game this important now at this point of qualification or do you wait for the friendlies that will hopefully follow before a World yeah, Cup campaign? Yeah, the, the, there's, there's a really difficult one because there's a, I, I can't imagine what it'd be like to be a manager, right, and be in those shoes because... yeah. The importance of the games, you're playing a system, you're playing away, they haven't been together before. Do you take the risk? With such mm. big games coming up, of bringing in players that have not been in and around the setup, that's your big dilemma. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I, like I said to you, yeah. I, I can understand the thoughts on it, but I would have brought them in a while ago already. I, I mean, I would have, I don't yeah. care, Kemi Devlin's been there for what, six months? I don't care. He's clearly taken the step up, he's clearly good enough. I know Arnie had him at Sydney, Sydney FC maybe there's still a bit of what what it was like when he was then. He was a slower developer, and Cammy said it himself, you know. Mm. But you've got to take it off face value and how well they're doing, how well he's doing now. Got to give him a chance. Yeah, definitely. And it is remarkable to think he was a late call-up into the Oli Roos squad just before the Olympics, and now in, in the space of six months, he's really skyrocketed up football, playing very well in Scotland. Schwartzy, we lost Bridges somewhere around that conversation. We lost connection to Michael Bridges, but we carried it, as you'd expect here. Um, he spent he spent a lengthy amount of his career on the sidelines, and I think he's the team. The team has learned to move on without Bridgie when we're missing him. Quick one before we finish it off: Champions League back tomorrow. I want to get your opinion on a couple games, just real quick ones. PSG Real Madrid. Who wins in Paris? Real Madrid. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, I don't Real know. Madrid I don't in know. Paris. I'm just wow. saying that because I wow. would like Real Madrid to win. Uh, you know what? You would yeah. think PSG is just not functioning well at the moment. They're not. They're not going well at no. the moment. They're not playing. But then saying that. Real Madrid haven't been particularly great in the last couple of games either. So I'm just going to say Real Madrid. I know a few players personally. Yeah. And yeah. But I do like Poch. I do like his coaching staff. Always great to talk to. Always great to see when I see him. So yeah, I listen. I don't really care, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to see a good game. Oh, I just want to see a good brilliant. game. I don't yeah. really, really care who wins yeah. out of the two of them. That, that's. That's the feature. That's all we want to see there. And uh, it's incredible that we can we can kind of criticize PSG when they're 13 points clear in I the know. league. Sporting Club de Portugal at home to Man City. <laughs> You're sporting... Can they get a result at home? Yeah, absolutely. Listen, sporting have done incredibly well the last couple of seasons. You know, very young side and um, found their way back to, to the heights, the top, the very heights, the very top of, of Portuguese football. Um, obviously very hotly contested with Benfica and Porto. So no, incredibly well. Um, listen, if they're at this stage of the competition, you, you can never underestimate them. City are a great side, really top side. Yeah. Can Sporting get a result at home? Yes, they can. Will they? Probably not. Mm. I think Man City are such Probably a good not. side, but but they could. Yeah, well, for any, for anyone still listening at this point of the podcast, make sure you you jump on Google and look up uh, Sporting up against Porto a couple of days ago. It was a two-two draw, I and there were four saw, red cards yes, in the last yes, minute. Of yeah, the game. absolutely. And and of course, um, you know who was at the heart of most of that? It had to be. It had to be him. It, it, there can't be red cards, and, and he's not having exactly. one. Thursday morning, Schwartzy Inter at home to Liverpool. Yeah, wow. Oh, what I mean, they're unbelievable games, aren't they? I mean, so good. So like. Good ridiculously good I I don't know I mean listen, I'm, I'm going to say Liverpool because of the Premier League connection and I, I want to see the Premier League teams yeah. do really really well is that great for the competition yeah. I don't care either I just want the Premier League sides to do really really well <laughs> unless it's Bayern Munich of course yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. no no I, I, listen I think 
toss a coin, really. But then the thing is, Liverpool's yeah. front three will win games single-handedly. And of course, they've got one of the best defenders in the world. They've got one of the best uh, right-backs in the world, no doubt. So uh, midfield, you can look all over. You can Look, one of the best goalkeepers. You look all over that Liverpool side, it's incredible. Insane. So, yeah. Well, yeah. I fancy Liverpool. Let's say it. Inter definitely need a result at home. They haven't been great in the Champions League in recent history, but uh, Eden Dzeko, huge game for him. Can he, can he show it still at the biggest stage? Last one, Salzburg up against Bayern Munich. How many goals will Bayern score? Schwartz? I don't know. Bayern were pants on the weekend. They lost, they lost away to, to Bochum. They lost 4 2. But that's, that's, the worst thing. that's the worst thing that can happen if you're about to play Bayern and they lose a few days yeah, before. It's I like, know. yeah. It doesn't happen twice yeah, in a row. Yeah, but sometimes you know? it can be a bit of a wobble, you know. Um, Bayern haven't had that. I mean, Nagelsmann, I don't, yeah, it's a really strange one uh, to lose to Bochum. They were down 4 1. 1 0 up, then down 4 1 in the first half. Like, it's just so un, un- Bayern. Um, mind you, I say that unbind. They've had a couple of results like that this season. I mean, the cup they got smashed by Borussia Mönchengladbach, um, and and Bayern had their full side out. It wasn't like Bayern can say, "Well, no, no, we rested play." <laughs> They're their full side out, so they are prone to get beaten. Um, and losing to Bochum, who's to say Salzburg couldn't do it at home? But but I'm going to say Bayern. I'm going. I'm of course I'm going to stick with Bayern, but. Be wary. I think so. As, as I said, it doesn't happen twice in a row. But be wary, and it, it would be it would be great for football if we do get a result there and do get a good tie that goes right down to the wire. Nonetheless, Schwartzy, thanks very much for joining me and uh, Paul Williams and Michael Bridges as well. Of course, it's been a jam-packed episode, and then after all that Champions League action, it then kicks off all throughout the weekend. The Premier League is back. Huge games. Man City take on Spurs. That's an interesting game. Could be make or break for Antonio Conte if he gets battered there. Cracking football coming your way and you can keep up with all the latest news on the Optus Sport app, guys. Until next week, we'll see you then.